Hi, this is Elliot Fishman, and welcome back to part two of our CT of the chest with a focus on the mediastinum. Interesting cases and what we can learn from them. And again, as I mentioned, these are many of the cases that I show at conference, and I thought I'd share them with you. So we spoke before about different compartments, and when you think about the posterior mediastinum, things you always need to think about, obviously, are the aorta, the esophagus, and then the spine. This is a patient with back pain, and in fact, the study was done to rule out the section. But what you can see here is the destruction of one of the mid-thoracic vertebral bodies. You can see that very nicely here. You can see the paraspinal mass, and also the paraspinal mass extending posteriorly into the muscle with cystic component or fluid part of the patient's paraspinal abscess. You can see it's fairly extensive, tracking down toward the cruise of the diaphragm, you can see it involves the pleural space on the right. You can see the extension downward toward the psoas muscle and displacement of the right kidney. And the large cystic components involving muscle and subcutaneous tissues on the right. When you look at the lateral view, which of course is critical, you can see some sclerotic changes in bone. There's no gross destruction or collapse or discitis at this point, but there are multiple vertebral bodies that show sclerotic changes present consistent with the patient's path-proven diagnosis of tuberculosis. As you go to the bone windows and widen the windows a bit with 3D imaging, you really can appreciate the bony changes. At times, you don't always appreciate them on the axial view. The sagittal view, you really see them better because... You look at the normal and the abnormal vertebral bodies. So even when there's subtle sclerosis, it's much more obvious when you're looking at it. And here's a few more images, just a beautiful example of TB. And again, TB typically leads to discitis. This is what I would call a mild case, perhaps, though there is a large soft tissue component and a large abscess present. So perhaps it's mild relative to the bony changes. Now that's compared to this case. Look at the large paraspinal mass, but the really gross bone destruction. Look at the extent of the destruction of these multiple vertebral bodies. This one's collapsed and basically chewed away. You have a discitis at multiple levels. You have additional sites of disease a little bit higher. That's a very aggressive process. It's interesting how infection at times can look very aggressive and simulate malignancy. Maybe you would think about a plasma cytoma. Maybe you would think about metastasis from a renal cell. Look at the 3D volume rendering and the sagittal view really showing the severe deformity of the spinal curvature and the extensive bony destruction. And then here on the coronal view, again, a beautiful example of a paraspinal abscess due to tuberculosis. In this case, extensive bony destruction. Now, when you talk about posterior mediastinum and we talk about the esophagus, typically I'm thinking about things like obstruction of the esophagus due to a lower tumor, maybe really bad esophagitis in a patient who's immunosuppressed like a bone marrow transplant patient. Maybe I'm thinking about achalasia. But what about this case? A patient has a cough, the esophagus is dilated, and I see food in the esophagus, so maybe it's obstructed. Next scan, you see a really impressive infiltration, encasement of the patient's trachea. So now I'm thinking malignancy, but then I scan further down and look at the large mass. It's densely calcified, really impressively calcified, particularly on the sagittal view. The location seems to be along the course of the esophagus, or maybe it's from the esophagus. 
Now, things of the esophagus that calcify leiomyomas, you can get punctate calcifications. Perhaps the patient has an aggressive leiomyomas sarcoma with really coarse calcifications. Perhaps the patient had radiation therapy for lymphoma, but that wasn't the case here. A teratoma, some other unusual sarcoma. Those are all things I'm thinking about. And look how extensive this process is. Really impressive on the sagittal view. You're surely considering malignancy. But this was biopsied. This was not a sarcoma. Look at its effect on the trachea, shown nicely on the volume rendering of the airway where the tracheal bifurcation is widened, the left main stem bronchus is encased. What's going on here? There's a mass involving esophagus, involving airway. Again, we always think about tumor. We're thinking about strange neoplasms. Well, this wasn't a neoplasm. This was fibrosing metastinitis. Fibrosing metastinitis, you always think about when you have SVC occlusion and a soft tissue mass present. It can be due to infection. It can be due to radiation therapy. It's often idiopathic. But I've never seen a case like this involving posterior and mid-mediastinum obstructing the esophagus with such very impressive calcifications. Now, to show you why fibrosing metastinitis is a very tricky diagnosis, this patient presented with shortness of breath. You look, there's a large heart, particularly right side enlargement, and then there's narrowing of the right main pulmonary artery with soft tissue thickening and encasement. Whenever I see encasement of the pulmonary artery, I'm thinking of tumor, typically lung cancer. But you didn't find the lung mass. The esophagus is a bit dilated. You don't really see any adenopathy. And then you look further and you say, look at this infiltration around the patient's right main pulmonary artery, but the upper lung branches are particularly narrowed and really encased. Here it is again on that view. And then when you look at some of the MIP imaging, you see the pulmonary arteries on the left, but on the right, there really is no pulmonary artery of any note to the upper lung region, and the rest of the pulmonary artery is small on the right side. And the soft tissue infiltration is kind of worrisome. Could this patient have radiation therapy and some fibrosis after? Could this be a treated lung cancer? None of those things were true. And again, here it is when you look at the MIP imaging. Again, the paucity of vessels in the patient's right lung, particularly the right upper lung. So what are we dealing with? Another example of fibrosing metastinitis. A very tricky and difficult case. It's a condition that affects the area in the mediastinum, which contains heart, blood vessels, trachea, esophagus, and lymph nodes. People with fibrosing metastinitis have varying amounts of scar tissue in the mediastinum. And the process is very difficult in terms of what organs are involved and how to treat the patient. As I mentioned, many cases are idiopathic. Others can be due to infection. People typically think about histoplasmosis as a cause. The symptoms, again, depend on the area involved, from encasement of the pulmonary artery to esophageal obstruction. The symptoms will vary. When you have SVC involvement, you have neck dilatation, uh, swelling. And again, symptoms, cough, shortness of breath, recurrent infections, hemoptysis, pleuritic pain, difficulty swallowing, core pulmonale, all of these make sense depending on the extent of involvement. And again, it's a potentially life-threatening proliferation of dense infiltrative fibrous tissue in the mediastinum. It's an important diagnosis because I think it's typically confused with malignancy. 
and you're working the patient up for malignancy and the biopsies come back negative or none of the studies are positive, there's no occult primary distally, so you need to really be thinking about fibrosing metastinitis, also known as sclerosing metastinitis or metastinal fibrosis. And again, um, when you have to think about it, it's usually divided into granulomatous fibrosing metastinitis and non-granulomatous fibrosing metastinitis, with about up to 90% of the cases being granulomatous fibrosing metastinitis. So again, uh, we talk about histoplasmosis, but other things mentioned, TB, of course, ranks up there with histo, but blastomycosis, mucormycosis, and cryptococcosis. Okay, so just very, very important. The calcifications are really a hallmark. So infiltrating soft tissue process with dense and coarse calcifications, which as I showed you in the prior case, can be very extensive. Now, from the second case, you see the encasement of the vessel, but you didn't see any calcification. So you don't necessarily need calcification. It's also important to remember that you can see additional extrathoracic locations, especially retroperitoneal fibrosis, changes in the liver with sclerosing cholangitis or autoimmune pancreatitis. And again, we really always think about multiple sites of disease. Radiation therapy can give a form of fibrosing metastinitis. Now, other things we think about in the metastinum are cystic. If I show you a cystic lesion, you're thinking bronchogenic cyst, esophageal duplication cyst, metastinal cyst. Here's a great example of a bronchogenic cyst. Classic location, subcarinal, second most common right paratracheal region. Typically water density, but doesn't need to be. They're typically not enhancing. You can see this one here located very nicely in the subcarinal region and extending to the right. Now, other things we can see in the metastinum which simulate masses are vascular abnormalities. In this case, you look at the main pulmonary artery and right main pulmonary artery, it looks great. But that left pulmonary artery, what's going on here? The left pulmonary artery, which is always anterior to the trachea, is posterior to the trachea and between the trachea and esophagus. And it's tracking not from midline to left, but from right to left. And that's a variation called a pulmonary sling or an anomalous course of the left pulmonary artery. Typically, it's an incidental finding, but can surely simulate a metastinal mass. It's a rare vascular developmental abnormality. The left pulmonary artery forms a sling around the distal trachea and the proximal right main bronchus. Those affected by pulmonary artery sling may be classified into two groups, one with a normal bronchial pattern and the other with one or more malformations of the tracheobronchial tree, as well as cardiovascular abnormalities. When you have multiple abnormalities, the mortality and morbidity are high during infancy. Most of the cases I've seen, or essentially all the cases, are in adults, which means the patient essentially has been asymptomatic, and it's just an incidental finding detected on a CT or MR scan. Now, I showed you the case of fibrosing metastinitis and how it affected the esophagus. Esophageal pathology is something you always think about when you're looking at the mediastinum, whether it's a large hiatal hernia, whether it's achalasia, perhaps esophageal cancer with obstruction, but also varices around the lower esophagus, particularly in patients with cirrhosis. So for example, in this case, there's a large mediastinal mass, posterior and middle mediastinum, 
and you recognize the epicenter is the esophagus. It's esophageal cancer, and this fistulization to the trachea, this is all soft tissue infiltration by tumor. The trachea is narrowed. The left main stem bronchus is nearly occluded. Tumor infiltrates toward the left hilum and toward the aorta in a very, very bulky tumor. Coronal views, you see the fistulization, the ulceration. Esophageal cancer often presents late. A patient had a cough, wasn't worked up. Esophageal cancer often occurs in patients who have are debilitated, patients with long histories of smoking, long histories of alcohol abuse, and so they often present late because they're not in the healthcare system per se. I really like sagittal views for looking at the esophagus regardless of the cause. Sagittal views are really good for the spine, as I showed you some examples, for the esophagus, sternum, as well as the aorta. You got to be looking at the sagittal views, of course. Now, achalasia is an unusual entity. Achalasia, you look at this case, you say, gee, a dilated esophagus could be a tumor, could be a stricture, could be a lie stricture, could be a cancer of the distal esophagus or GE junction. The esophagus is markedly dilated. There's food in the esophagus, but as you track it down the esophagus, the wall is not thickened, it's markedly dilated, and you see the transition at the GE junction. This is a classic appearance of achalasia. Just a beautiful example of achalasia. It's amazing how often these patients present late. Patients will get um, endoscopy, they'll be looking for the possibility of fistula, looking for the possibility of tumors. There's an increased incidence of esophageal cancer as well as tracheal and lung cancer in these patients. And they'll also do a, a scoping and try to dilate the region near the GE junction and lower esophagus. Just a beautiful example of achalasia and classically presents as a widened mediastinum. On CT, the answer is typically very obvious. Now, one of the things I also like to mention, in this case, I've only showed you one slide of the liver. If I showed you more images, the liver would be cirrhotic. Now, the reason I'm making that point is when you look at the esophagus here, am I dealing with hiatal hernia or lymphoma, this big bulky soft tissue, I see the lumen of the esophagus, but what is all this mass? Well, if you wait about 30 more seconds or so, and you scan the patient, you realize these are all large varices. Varices of the lower esophagus can simulate malignancy, can simulate adenopathy, if you only have arterial phase imaging or you have non-contrast CT. So when I see a cirrhosis of the liver, I'm always cautious before I call adenopathy in the posterior mediastinum or adenopathy in the abdomen in general because I'm always worried the patient may have varices. And you can see how extensive these varices are. And it's just a very impressive appearance and you'd hate to have someone scope for no reason. One of the reasons we like IV contrast in patients who have um, GI bleeding is because we can really evaluate the presence of esophageal varices and when they're this extensive, it's not uncommon for the patients to have symptoms of GI bleeding. Now, I mentioned before about bronchogenic cysts, and I mentioned how bronchogenic cysts and esophageal duplication cysts can look very similar depending on location. When things are located much lower near the GE junction, as in this case, it's much easier to know this esophageal duplication cyst. They can be large. Most occur in the posterior inferior esophagus, and adult symptoms are typically secondary to mass effect. 
Again, differential diagnosis, as we mentioned, bronchogenic cyst, neuroenteric cyst, pericardial cyst, and lymphangioma, amongst other things. Again, CT appearance usually allows you to make the correct diagnosis. Okay, now we're coming to the end of my talk, so let me quiz you. I talked about the mediastinum, and obviously I didn't speak about everything, so let me do one last entity. What is this one centimeter enhancing lesion by the esophagus and the posterior mediastinum? Is that a node? Is that a met? What is that? Here it is again, posterior mediastinum. Here it is, oval one centimeter. What are you thinking about? There it is on volume rendering, and here it is on cinematic rendering. Classic, again, thinking node, thinking metastasis. What else should you be thinking about? There it is again on the cinematic. I'll count to three and ask for an answer. And the answer is an ectopic parathyroid adenoma. Parathyroid adenomas can be one of the most challenging diagnoses. Patients are hyperparathyroid. They've had their parathyroid glands removed and they're still symptomatic. There has to be an extra gland somewhere. Often it's near the thyroid, inferiorly, but it can be in the mediastinum tracking along anywhere the thymus can be. The way you can make the diagnosis, obviously the history helps, but it's the vascular nature of the lesion. And sometimes, as in this case, we pick up an ectopic parathyroid adenoma when the patient wasn't classically symptomatic. Here's some others. Now in this case, the lesion's anterior mediastinum, it could be a small thymoma, could be a node. I have to admit, I'm not all that impressed. Here it is in the coronal view. Again, the important thing to remember is typically when we diagnose them, they're enhancing, but they don't always need to be enhancing, as this case shows very nicely. Another example, remember the parathyroid adenomas track along the course of where the thymus goes. This could easily be a thymoma, and perhaps when you see an incidental lesion like this, you think about node, you think about a thymoma, usually a benign thymoma, but perhaps also an ectopic parathyroid adenoma if the clinical history fits. And just a very nice example showing you that on the sagittal view and really nicely showing it to you on the cinematic rendering. Just a beautiful example of that ectopic parathyroid adenoma right near the innominate vein and right near the patient's ascending aorta. Just really nice example. Here's that same patient with classic volume rendering and again, the full field of view. I really like the cinematic renderings because of the lighting model. Very nicely shown in this example. And here's a more classic case, perhaps, where the ectopic parathyroid adenoma is just near the inferior aspect of the left lobe of the thyroid gland. Very nicely shown as I go through the uh, volume-rendered images as well. Just a really, really nice example. Again, the importance if you're looking for an ectopic parathyroid adenoma to give IV contrast. The fact is, to me, you always need to give IV contrast. Yes, if I see non-contrast, I can recognize lymphoma and teratomas and perhaps thymomas. But there's so much information, you get more with IV contrast, including the extent of disease and also picking up these little nodules like ectopic parathyroid adenomas. And here's one last example. Again, my first call would have been a thymoma, anterior mediastinal mass, a bit over two centimeters. This was an ectopic parathyroid adenoma. So just a few facts, and I'll give you a few slides. Ectopic parathyroid glands arise due to abnormal embryologic migration, are found in one to 3% of the general population. 
and these combined together account for up to 25% of cases of parathyroid adenoma in patients who have um, have a parathyroidism. So it's a very important uh, diagnosis. The majority of them locate in the anterior mediastinum near the thymus, but some are present in the visceral compartment of the mediastinum or parasophageal position or in the AP window close to the patient's right pulmonary artery. So again, very important to recognize. Solitary parathyroid adenoma is a common cause of primary hyperparathyroidism and is usually located in the juxtathyroid position of the neck. Okay, so again, when you're looking for a ectopic parathyroid adenoma, you have to scan the neck and at least through the mid-chest. Parathyroid glands normally are arranged in two pairs, upper and lower. The lower pair originates from the dorsal wing of the third pharyngeal pouch, along with the thymus, which originates from the ventral wing. Hence, the common descending route of the inferior parathyroid with the thymus, which explains its aberrant location in the patient's mediastinum. Just a very nice explanation there. And just to remind everybody about ectopic parathyroid adenomas and hyperparathyroidism, hypercalcemia with raised parathormone levels or isolated hypercalcemia are diagnostic of primary hyperparathyroidism. Moran described cases where patients were being reviewed for parathyroid tumors in the mediastinum should metabolic disturbances such as hypercalcemia and hypophosphatemia. So again, very important to think about this. MIBI scans can be very helpful, but CT is typically the study of choice in these situations. MRI can also be helpful. So now I've gone through a range of pathologies. I did not cover everything, and I'll be back. I promise I'll be back with more on the mediastinum. But tumors of the mediastinum represent a wide diversity of diseases. Location and composition of a mass is critical to coming up with the best differential diagnosis. Some patients are symptomatic, some are asymptomatic. Some masses have similar appearances. Think about that parathyroid adenoma I just showed you, which looks like a thymoma, which looks like an enlarged node. But I think a combination of clinical history and CT findings will take you down the correct road in most cases. And with that, I thank you very much for your attention. If you like this video, make sure to subscribe to the CTSS YouTube channel. You can also visit us at ctss.com for even more videos, plus quizzes, pearls, protocols, and oh so much more. We're also in the App Store and have well over a dozen apps for iPhone and iPad, all completely free. Thanks for watching.